Well, I want to wear a jacket today. I didn't know what jacket to wear. Oh, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much. I won't preach in it. Some of you be booing me and won't hear a word I'm saying. This is my dad's jacket. We sent him on to his reward this last year with a great memorial service and went up to his home before I left town and my little sis said, grab one of his jackets. That's the one I grabbed. He's a crazy 49er fan. He'd love you all so much. We'd walk out of here today and this is what he'd say. Oh, Carl, isn't the grace of God good? Look at how God's working in those people. That's what he'd say. Got a new prescription for these glasses. Got a new set of glasses as well. If you wear glasses, it is one of the most awesome things to get a new accurate prescription, is it not? Yeah. <laughs> now, at first, you're a little bit dizzy because it's like, whoa, didn't know that was down there. <laughs> but after a while, you get a little bit adjusted to it. Boy, we are going to get some clarity today. Jude's vision to contend for the faith in a declining world and compromising church. Hang on, buckle up for four weeks. I want to give you a 10 fast facts about Jude. First, he's the half-brother of Jesus, not just James, but also Jude, the half-brother of Jesus. Yes, Jesus had brothers. In Matthew and in Luke and in Mark, we find references to the fact that Jesus had brothers. How many did he have, you might ask? Four of them? You want to know their names? It's in Matthew 13, verse 55. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Now, Judas, after the incident with Judas, most people decided, let's drop a couple letters and let's just call him Jude. That's what happened to Jude. Did you know that Jesus had sisters? I asked someone this morning, how many brothers and sisters did Jesus have at least? And the answer is at least six. We don't know for sure. We know at least six. In Matthew 13, 56, here's the quote. Are not all his sisters with us? When, they did the, when did this man get all these things? All of his sisters with us right here. Secondly, you see it there, he's the full brother of James, meaning they have the same mom and dad, Mary and Joseph. He was not an original disciple. We know this because after Jesus named his disciples and gathered crowds, as we find in Mark 3, none of Jesus' brothers or sisters were among them. How do we know that? Number four, they thought Jesus had lost his mind. I need you to hear me. Judas, excuse me, Jude thought Jesus had lost his mind. In Mark 3:21, and when his family heard it, what did they hear? They heard that he had assembled this group of disciples and now masses of people were following him. They went out to seize him for they were saying, quote, 
He is out of his mind. All of his brothers and sisters. But number five, they were transformed by the resurrection. Or so we conclude, how do we know this? Because in Acts 1.14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. I think one of the greatest confirmations of the deity of Jesus is the fact that at least six siblings believed that he was the Messiah. Who in the world can get on the same page in a house that size to believe anyone is anything, let alone the Savior of the world? Number six, he is not a brother of the Messiah. You will never see him say that. But number seven, he is, quote, a servant of Jesus Christ. As you'll see in the opening of Jude, he says, I am the brother of James and a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. James himself, the oldest brother of the four, never claims, hey, Messiah, he's my brother. There was no name drop in anything like that. These guys moved from skeptics thinking Jesus was out of his mind to being fully devoted followers of the Savior of the world. Amazing reality. Number eight, he wrote to a wide audience. There's no specific audience in the book of Jude. It's a general letter that probably would have been circulated far and wide. Number nine, borrowed some ideas from 2 Peter. As you do a deep dive on the book of Jude, you'll find these little triplets all over the place, and I'll show you one here in a moment, that is almost a mirror image of what's written in 2 Peter. It's really astounding stuff. 2 Peter, given a range of a couple of years, 65, 69 AD, it would have been written after that, most theologians agree. But he used some of that language written to Peter, written in the second chapter of Peter, in a uh, second book of Peter, in a powerful way. And then, number 10, he tossed velvet covered bricks. Carl, what do you mean? One of my favorite guys on the planet is Chuck Swindoll. And Chuck Swindoll says of the book of Galatians, he says, Galatians, and we're going to be getting into that series when we're done with this one. He says, Galatians is a velvet covered brick as only Chuck can say it. In other words, there's tough truth with just enough padding where you can maybe barely handle it. Which leads to the title of the message today, Perverted Grace. You might have heard of the team Cheap Grace. The term Cheap Grace can be traced all the way back to the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, that was written in 1937, this courageous man, who was, by the way, exterminated by Hitler three weeks before Hitler was taken down, and he knew he was, gonna, he was meeting his end, but out of bitterness, Hitler took out Bonhoeffer because he hated the fact that this guy stood for truth. But Bonhoeffer says, in this book, he defined cheap grace as, quote, the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, cheap grace is grace without discipleship. It's information without action. Grace without the cross. 
grace without Jesus Christ, which is cheap grace, no grace at all. Perverted grace is the twisting of grace and the diminishing of its power. It is a cheap grace in that it turns what was intended to bless us, God's power to do in us what we can't do in ourselves, to curse us. It's dangerous, deceptive, and destructive to the church culture. Perverted grace is something we all must be alert to because no one is above it. You know what I love about the book of Jude? This letter that was written, fourth shortest letter in the New Testament. What I love most about it is that he does what we find of the saints of old. He says, judgment begins in the house of God. I know we live in wokeness on steroids. It's okay. This history has a way of repeating itself. This has happened before. The question is, what can we learn about it? How do we respond? How do we not lose our minds in the process? And that's what we're going to drill down on in the book of Jude. Open your Bibles if you got them with you. Turn to Jude. Simple little book. Easy to find. It's the book right before Revelation. Simple to find. Just a couple of pages in my Bible, maybe one in yours. Jude, verse 1 and 2. No chapters. How about that? Jude 1 and 2. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, there it is, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, very important, listen close, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Don't blow past salutations. This is powerhouse. What we have here, and let me kind of capture it this way, this is no ordinary salutation. Jude intentionally prayed the Holy Trinity over the recipient's lives and our lives. Yeah, that's what he's praying. You might say, well, Carl, how do you get this? Well, we've got these little triads all the way through the book of James. And if you go ahead and pop on down to about three weeks from now, you go to verse 20 and 21 of Jude, look down there, and look what he says. But you, beloved, building yourself up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, I'm going to highlight this in a moment, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. You see what we have there? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Why in the world does Jude lead with the Holy Spirit because we all should be in this new covenant age leading with the Holy Spirit. I want to embed a great danger in your mind this morning. We have trained ourselves in solid Bible-believing churches who believe that we're buttoned down in our theology and got things pretty well hammered out. We've got a few questions here and there, but we study the word, we open it. I applaud you for that. That's a great thing. But we have trained ourselves in our churches to neglect the power, comfort, and guidance of the Holy Spirit, and it is dangerous. There's two reasons for this. I'm not going to belabor the first. Yes, there are abuses in the church. I had Sam Storms on radio here a few weeks ago. I'm bringing him back this week, by the way. Sam Storms is one of the greatest, I believe, modern-day theologians 
on the planet. And Sam Storms came on air with me, and I thought, oh, boy, this is going to be something. The response to this, I didn't get one text message. I didn't get one email because it's hard to argue with truth. But Sam was powering down on the need for the church to be irrigated by the power of the Spirit. And he said, Carl, I'm just like you. I was raised in a church where he talked about the Father and the Son, but the Holy Spirit, whoa. I need you to hear my heart here for a moment. I think that there's two reasons for the neglect of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Spirit in your life today. One is abuses in the church, I get that, but the other one is that we have twisted truth in this world. When I say to you, spirit guide, what do you think? I'll tell you what you think. When I say to you, spirit guide, if you're thinking rightly, you think we're talking about demons. I think you're right. I've been involved in a significant number of deliverance ministries where we saw people set free from demonic strongholds. It's not pretty. It's real. What you read in the New Testament in the book of Acts is happening today. And God wants more and more of you to experience freedom in Jesus Christ. But make no mistake about it. Do you know what Satan does? A lie is nothing but the truth with a twist at the end. And so he is successfully branded spirit guide. You know the problem with that is? Jesus said, I am leaving. The Holy Spirit will come. He is the comforter, and he, the Holy Spirit, will guide you into all truth. Do we need a spirit guide? Yes. We need the Holy Spirit guiding our life. There's three things that you can do with the Holy Spirit, and I want to linger here a moment longer because this is very important. I would venture to say something bold right now. There are three things that you do with the Holy Spirit, and only three things can you do with the Holy Spirit this morning. Monday, Tuesday, throughout the week. Only three things you can do. One, you can neglect him. You can ignore him like he doesn't exist. Secondly, you can resist him. You can be prompted and guided by the Holy Spirit to call up short your ability to try to self-aggrandize in a meeting that you have or to go into a pity party when you know that the tomb is empty. I get pain is real, but listen, we are not bound by the parameters of this world. And the Holy Spirit wants to guide us into all truth so we can neglect him, we can resist him when the prompting comes our way, or we can, according to Galatians 5.25, if you live in the Spirit, keep in step with the Holy Spirit. Now sometimes we overly mystify this, but I want you to know something right now. Inside scoop. I am being led by the Holy Spirit right now. I'm real inside skinny. Since I started speaking this morning, I can honestly tell you I have relied on the promptings of the Spirit probably no less than five times. Keep moving. 
linger here. Hold. Stop. I'm not, I'm not joking you. The only way a man can love his woman is to not study the words of Jesus alone and read through the epistles and to say, I love you, God. It's to be prompted and moved by the power of the Holy Spirit. You say, well, boy, that's kind of mystical. Yeah. At the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, they were debating, what do we do? What's the minimum viable product that we need to have for the Gentiles to abide by so that they aren't eating food sacrificed to idols? And they whittled it down to like three things. And you know how they concluded that? It seemed right to us and the Holy Spirit. I want us to become a people that are living in the power of of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we jump into two meaty verses today with a great salutation as a backdrop. We find Jude saying this, Beloved, Although I was eager to write to you about common salvation, so Jude had plans to write a letter, and he was going to talk about this common salvation, now, which is an interesting term, because what he's saying here is, I'm just like you. My brother, my half-brother is Jesus, but I'm just like you. But he stops that, and he says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. We'll get into that that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now we're going to break this down and we're not going to read anything beyond these verses today, so keep your Bibles open right there. I want to hit the issue of contending for faith. Some have wrongly interpreted this means that I'm, a, I'm ready to duke it out. Anybody comes at me with bad theology, I'm ready to duke it out. Put your fist down. That's not what this says. See, our battle is not ultimately against flesh and blood. There are spiritual forces of darkness, spirit guides that are leading people astray. Thoughts in their minds that are being cultivated by evil incarnate in their brain, manifested by demons. This is why Paul said to the church of Galatia, who has bewitched you? It was a demonic influence that twists truth and takes people down. Accurately, Merriam-Webster does a good job with the word contend. Contend means to strive or vie in contest or rivalry or against difficulties. Now, there's a couple of ex, uh, kind of de definitions of what it means to contend, and I think you'll resonate with these. Listen closely. The first one is contended with the problems of municipal government. We can feel that, right? You got a problem with municipal government? We contend. As followers of Christ, 
We are not contentious. We are contenders. We contend. We stand in the gap. We don't fight as men and women fight. We fight spiritually in the power of the Spirit. So he says, contend for the faith. Jude wants us to contend for something, though, that is specific, insidious, and deadly. And he specifically lays out what it is. This is what he wants us to contend for today. And to contend against perverted grace. Perverted grace. That's what we're to contend for. Perverted grace. How do we do this? There are three core truths about false messengers who pervert grace. Three core truths. Just stop right here. This is the first. I'm going to give you two more. I want you to dial in as closely as you can because we are about to save everyone in this room a ton of grief and walk us into some huge blessing. First one is this simple. They are here and will ultimately take, be taken down. Now, I want you to, to know something very important here. I was talking with my brother, Pastor Ajit Christopher, and we were discussing this passage this week. These are not false teachers alone. These are false messengers. So there's all kinds of references in the scriptures to false prophets, but these are false messengers, meaning no one in this room is above being afflicted by perverting grace. No one. And if we're not actively being led by the Holy Spirit, it's easy to get twisted, and you're going to see how easy it is. But let me give you some encouragement here. They are here and will ultimately be taken down. You can find it right here. For certain people have crept in, this is the fourth verse, unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people. God is sovereign. God knows who's coming our way, and he asks us to contend in this fight of faith, to stand firm. Give you any hope to know that people will be taken down? Now, we need to be careful that we're not gleeful over this. Very careful. But oftentimes what we find all over the scriptures is a need for us to get out of God's way so that God can do a work. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Some of the most defeated people I know on this planet or some, maybe you're here today and there was a wrong done to you back here and it has been eaten at your soul forever. I want you to know God sees. God can deal with this thing. He's got it. They are here and they will ultimately be taken down. But here's my warning to you. Don't be the one who is taken down. Velvet-covered brick. Second, they twist grace to justify a life of sexual sin. 
Now, in just a moment here, we're going to get into the different ways that we pervert grace, but I need to be very accurate to the text here. What Jude is speaking of are men and women who come in unseen, populate the body of Christ, to say that again it is true that not only are people possibly here and by the way hear me now you are not the enemy our enemy is not flesh and blood we are spiritual beings we are in constant spiritual conflict and God wants to give us victory but the perversion of grace that's being spoken of here specifically and we'll get into the other kinds of perversions of grace I'll touch on them briefly But the perversion that's spoken of here is a perversion of grace to justify a life of sexual sin. And we know how devastating this is in our culture today. I have never seen any kid that survived well the storm of sexual sin with a mom or a dad. Never seen it. It's devastating. The long tail effects of sexual sin are running rampant. Now, I know they're glorified. And I know that sometimes we can watch a movie and we look at something and we kind of snicker at something. But some of those things are leading to a path that is incredibly destructive. And I'm not asking you to become some self-righteous Christian that says, well, I'm going to take Carl's media one day off and I'm not going to watch it. No, we live in a world, we sort through stuff. I get that. But the perversion spoken of here is sexual sin. Now, I want to say something here that is so important. I made a slide for it. Don't put it up yet, Isaac. And I need you to understand the distinction of what real grace is versus perverted grace. General statement, take it to the bank. Here it is. Grace is not permission to live as we like. It's the privilege to live as we never could before. This is what we've twisted. We've created grace to be this kind of this holy catch-all. It's kind of the rubber band man for all the things that we do that are indiscretions before God. That ain't grace. And let me be very clear, is God gracious enough to let us in when we've erred and we've confessed our sin and come back to him? Absolutely, our God is a loving God. He's merciful. If you don't believe that, follow me around for a week. You'll see the mercies of God. But we can't rubber band man that twisted grace because all it proves is that we're living bound by an earthly sphere, the natural man not experiencing this grace that is the power of God to live as we never could before. Paul is a champion of the power of grace. The apostle Paul spends the fifth chapter of the book of Romans, hammering this wonderful grace. And he talks about how the grace of God is our ultimate cover for sins in our life. But a natural problem will arise when we talk about grace being a natural cover. We can use grace as that rubber band. 
So what did Paul do in Romans 6, verses 1 and 2? He says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Some of your translations say, God forbid. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now let's clarify, Paul's not saying that we're going to become sinlessly perfect. But what he's saying is, if you've been transformed out of the realm of darkness and been put smack dab in the light of Jesus Christ and have been sealed, Ephesians 1, with the Holy Spirit and given power, Acts 1, 8, to live accordingly, why in the heck are we twisting grace? Why in the heck? He's done so much for us. Why turn grace into a little toy to monkey with so that we can kind of push the boundaries of the natural man and go, man, glad for God's grace. We've limited it. And God has so much more. I want to illustrate this. I've asked Victor and Nam to come up here. Let's go, gentlemen. I have a training band here today. And I want to illustrate this as clearly as I possibly can. You might feel like, in the natural man, we're tempted to rationalize behaviors that don't comport with the empty tomb. And so we say, well, I'm edgy. I kind of learned that from my dad. I'm kind of, kind of lazy. But God's got grace. And we persist in edgy, and we persist in lazy. And some say, I, I love my wife, but if she'll just meet me halfway. If my wife comes out to the 50-yard line. Oh, oh yeah, if, if a certain person behaves a certain way, then I'll give them love. This is twisted grace. God says, we live in a natural man's sphere. Twisted grace says, how can I kind of hit the boundaries of grace? And, and is, isn't, this, isn't this real? Won't, won't God forgive me? Yes, he forgives you. But a grace that rationalizes, stay there for a second, man. A grace that rationalizes our sin and uses his grace as a backstop is no faith at all. I'm going to hit a hot topic with you right now. And I'm going to be just as straightforward as I can be. I think I, I know I stand on good ground here with the DLT, my colleagues, and men that I defer to our elders. I am not, I'm not a drinker. I like to tell people, I drank my entire life quota in four years. It's like God said, whoop, you're done. You're born again, now you're done. Now, honestly, I do not mind, and I think nor does God, this might tip some people over here, if you have some wine or a drink that's not intoxicating. However, be careful. 
I've even seen this, getting out on an edge here, but I'm going to say it. I've seen this as one of the maladies of the modern church. We look at things like alcohol and we say, well, I have, I have the grace. I, I got the grace to drink. Are you kidding me? I didn't need grace to drink, and I mean get knocked off my booty drunk. You don't need grace to drink. You might have that liberty. Now, I'd say with one checks and balances, if you're using your liberty saying, oh, it's, it's, if there's a weaker brother, somebody that struggles with it, that's on them. You're twisting grace, my friend. That's twisted grace. But if we begin to see that God's grace allows us to operate in this natural realm, not by bouncing off the boundaries and asking for forgiveness, but saying, Holy Spirit, come in power on me. This edgy thing, this self-sufficiency thing, this 50-50 thing with my spouse, this crazy thing that I've done saying, well, God's got grace for a little drink or two. You might have liberty for a drink. You might have reason to say, my wife should make some moves toward me too. Fill in the blank. But we have no excuse to live in the box of the flesh, twisting grace, because grace is God's power to do in us what we can't do. It's the privilege to live radically for Jesus Christ. Thank you, gentlemen. That's going to get a little deeper in here. How did these messengers creep in unnoticed? How did they do that? Whew. Perverted grace, specifically, let me go to the direct application of what Jude is teaching here. Perverted grace and this sexual sensuality starts very small almost imperceptible the reason that they come in unnoticed is sometimes people walk in unnoticed because they are unwittingly carrying twisted grace in the life that they're living and it comes in imperceptible very small almost totally unnoticed but here's the reality it always ends with a bang the affair isn't the beginning of compromise it's the crashing end of a series of small compromises. That's what it is. Howard Hendricks said it this way. Sexual sin that flattens men and women is never a blowout. It's always a small leak. The objectification of the other sex, and I don't want to just talk to you men alone because this can happen with women as well. The objectification of women and men 
is a slow leak. It's almost imperceptible. You can walk in here and go, yeah, where, where's that? Where's that person sneaking in? And if you listen close, you might be able to hear your life going, When our aim is to garner a little sexual or sensual gratification for ourselves outside the bound of the covenant of marriage, perverted grace can be nuanced. Gratifying our sexual and sensual needs, a little flirtation, Need for opposite sex affirmation. A touch here or there. A lingering glance. A mind drifting to fantasies. See how vitally important it is to strike a blow to the small stuff? I know. It's right there, man. So accessible by the phone. That affirmation, ladies, from that man can strike a needy place in your heart. Yeah. That glance at that picture on that smartphone. Be careful here because I don't want you guys to feel beat up in any way. It's a velvet covered brick. But Howard Hendricks was right, man. The blowout of infidelity is just the result of a long, slow leak. There are a lot of people in this world today that get mocked for having healthy boundaries in their life. Please don't mock them. I remember a man named Mike Pence getting mocked nationally for adopting what he called the Billy Graham rule. I'm not here talking politics. I'm talking spiritual vitality. You know, I'll never forget Hugh Salisbury, silver-haired fox, tennis coach at my college. I was in his class about pastoral leadership. After class one day, he says, Clawson, want you in my office today. Oh boy. I went up there and he said, Carl, I need you to know something. 
you're a loud, outgoing guy. And you're going to get plenty of opportunities to compromise your love for your bride. He said, let me tell you what you do. Never counsel a woman alone. Ever. Don't go picking up women and driving them around. I know some will say you're way too sensitive, but I promise you, young man, you'll be the wiser for it. Don't entertain, Carl. Hugh. Don't entertain and start thinking when you start getting praise and applause that you're all that. I don't know how you might have walked in here today perverting grace, but I know this. God wants to fill you up with all the power that he has manifested in a risen Savior, a loving God, and a powerful spirit that can whisper to us, don't go down that rabbit hole. Stay away over here. She can get a ride from someone else, whatever it is. His glance to me is nothing to even get fired up about. Grace is not permission to live as we like. It is the privilege to live as we never could before. Come on, man. Come on, man. Come on. We can do this, guys. Another core truth about false messengers who pervert grace. They deny Jesus Christ as master and Lord by the lives they live. Now you see that in verse 4, but you, all you hear is that they deny him as master and Lord. But every commentator says the hint is that they are ungodly that's spoken of just a couple of phrases before that. Now, I want to disavow of any notion that we should be people who are constantly living freaked out. Freaked out about what's going on, what's happening. Listen, glances, temptation, everything's just going to be coming our way left and right. Here's, here's the issue. We live in this world, but not of this world. We've been radically transformed by a loving God who sent his son. The son said, it's to your advantage that I go, so the Holy Spirit will come. The Holy Spirit will convict the world regarding sin, righteousness, and judgment, and he will comfort you. You don't have to be freaked out. We can know exactly what moves we're to make, what's wise, what's foolish, and be guided along the way. But how in the world do you deal with these others? You don't have to be freaked out or panicked about false messengers because of what Jesus said. A tree will always ultimately bear fruit in keeping with its root. 
give it time. That's why we wait to see elders' lives over a period of time before we ask them to come on board. In fact, when I planted this church, I was meeting with Acts 29 consultant. You know what he told me? Years ago now, he said, Carl, what's your plan for elders? I said, I'm going to appoint them as soon as I can. He said, Beth, that'd be the stupidest thing you could do. I said, really? He said, yeah, that would be foolish. He said, more church plants have blown up because they hastily grabbed a group of guys that he thought were elders and then kablooey. I said, well, what do I do? He said, grab four or five men that have known you over a decade that are respected men that have your back, have fiduciary accountability. And so I grabbed a few. I grabbed Crawford Loritz. I grabbed Luis Palau. I grabbed Robert Lewis. And about two others that you wouldn't know. And I said, men, you're my men until we can really see what's going on here. And I waited. And yesterday I had a sweet elder board meeting with some really cool guys. Are they perfect? Shoot, no. But they're good guys. I'm leaving Mumbai. We're climbing out, Swiss air, headed for Switzerland. Young lady sitting beside me. Through conversation, I find out she's about eight years younger than my daughter. Talking to her, feeling old. I'm asking her some questions about life, how she's doing. She says, oh, I'm doing great. She said, you know what? I have some heartache in my life, and I don't know why she began to open up to me. This happens to me all the time. She just began to open up. And she said, I am the first person in my caste system in India that has made it out. I said, what do you mean? She says, I'm flying to Toronto. I have a job there as an engineer. She says, I'm going through some heartache right now, though. I said, well, what's your heartache? She said, I've been dating this guy for four years only to find out he was cheating on me, and he's a fraud. I said, could I give you some advice? She said, absolutely. I said, you know what? I know this man, and you know of him, too, because in Indian culture... Jesus is seen as one of the gods. But I said, I know a man named Jesus, and he wrote some powerful words. And you know what he said? He said that a tree will always bear fruit in keeping with its root system that will always show up, give it enough time, you're going to see it. It's going to come out. She said, really? I said, yeah. I said, give it some time. Have you got any guys right now that you're thinking about? She said, I just got on the plane. Two days ago, I told my mom and dad, I'm going old school. Like everyone else in my community, arrange a marriage for me. By the way, I happen to think that ain't a bad idea. Would you believe that the sustainability rate of arranged marriages exceeds self-selection? So she said, I went back and I told my mom and dad, I want you to go arrange a marriage for me, which in her, in her mind, she modified it a little bit. It's that the mom will scout out some guys, give pictures and information, and then she gets to meet them and see if this is clicking and what's gelling. And I said, you got any pictures of these guys? She said, break them out. Let's see what these guys look like. <laughs> and so she breaks out these pictures. And there's one dude, I mean, he's stud muffin. I said, that guy's a hunk of burning love. Look at that guy. She's laughing her head off. She's like, you got to be kidding me. I said, no, this guy's great, isn't he? 
I said, this is, this is great. Now, I said, now hold on here a second. How are you going to know if this guy's the guy? She says, I guess I got to wait. I said, you wait. And you watch. You wait and you see. Does he treat his mom well? Does he treat his friends well? Is he a man that is humble and is he teachable? What kind of a guy is this? And she just lit up. And we talked about that for a little bit of time. And I said, by the way, his name is Jesus, and there's more where that came from. I would encourage you to check this guy out. Now, here's what's so cool. I took a nap, got up, woke up, had some water. Plane arrives in Zurich. I'm getting up to get my bags. I said, it was really nice to talk with you. She said, you don't know how incredible this was for me. And you don't need to freak out either. God's good. You single ladies in here right now, you listen to me just like that young lady did. You make that guy prove himself without telling him he's doing it. Because a tree will always have fruit in keeping with its root. I got a turning point for us today. So the question comes down to how in the world are we going to contend for the faith? Contend for the faith by living lavishly in true grace. Lavishly in true grace. Drawing a stark contrast from perverted grace lavishly on fire filled with his grace and mercy you know I, listen close now there's some of you in this room right now that are wondering where do i stand on the spectrum of grace carl am i a, am i a, am i a gal am i a guy that's just kind of stuck in this twisted grace i want to tell you right now Jude said to this group, and you will see this in the next three weeks to come, he said clearly the way to contend for faith is to live lavishly in the unperverted grace of God. His power to do in us what we can't do in ourselves. After 36 years of marriage, I do not have the power or wisdom to know how to love my bride well. I do not. But the Holy Spirit prompts me Sometimes when I'm sitting down, some, sometimes when I'm walking into the home, various different places, the Holy Spirit will prompt me with, Carl, let's do this to show your love for your bride. Carl, let's not say this right now. That wouldn't be good. God prompts me while I'm on air at radio. God's Spirit prompts me while I'm standing here today. You see, inside the box of the natural man, we want to push the boundaries and call it grace. No! We fall to our knees and say, Holy Spirit, come in power. Fill me up. Make me attentive to what you are saying. And let me live so lavishly in true grace 
that perverted grace will not have a breath in my life. And you know what will happen? When people see you living lavishly with true grace in your life, you will live in such a way before men that they will see your good deeds and they will say, take me to your leader. Father, please make it so in our lives. Make it so in our lives. Make it so in our lives. Let me 
that again, and let's just do it as a prayer to God right now. Here we go. Let me in into your heart. Let me heal the broken places, giving you a brand new start. There is none like you. here before we go today if you're new here we'd love to connect with you and I really mean that from the bottom of my heart we just kicked off T7R groups this last Thursday and the reports back are already staggering we had on a zoom call 130 people and we're praising God for that now this is what I want you to know if you're new here the best thing you can do is go right back there Jen is going to be back there at that info kiosk and she's going to help you get signed up with everything you need Okay, Gloria is going to be over here if you're in a T7R group and have not gotten your book yet you're going to want to go over there and get that and get that pre-reading done chapters 1 through 4 for uh, Thursday night Okay. now may the God who has lavish grace may he compel you to live in that grace May he grant you the wisdom to hear his voice and go his way. And may you be blessed. Have a great day. There is none, there is none like you. No one else, no one else can touch my heart like you. Search 